0: When a vicious custody battle ended in murder, the police initially suspected the angry ex. But the clues began to point elsewhere at an overprotective family member. The investigators sorted through the evidence to decide who they thought was to blame. But could the prosecution prove it beyond a reasonable doubt? I'm Charlie and welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome back to Crime Lines. This is part two of the Fred Jablin Piper Roundtree saga. Join me on January 29th on my live stream to discuss this case. I have a special guest, Lainey Hobbs. She is the host of True Crime Fan Club and the ParCast original Crimes of Passion. I will leave a link to the live stream in the show notes. Because this is a part two, you do want to go back and listen to part one before you listen to this. I personally like back-to-back binging myself, so I understand if you waited until this came out to even listen to the first one. But let me give a very brief recap. In 2004, 52-year-old Fred Jablin and 44-year-old Piper Roundtree had finally found some sort of routine after a rocky 18-year marriage ended in one of the most contentious divorces you could imagine. Fred was awarded full custody of their three children, and he was living in Virginia with them while Piper would fly back and forth from her home in Texas to see the children for her visitation. On the morning of Saturday, October 30th, 2004, Fred Jablin's neighbor, Bob McArdle, heard three clear gunshots. He called 911, and the police responded quickly. Bob told them what he had heard and also the vague directions the sound came from. He also told them about a shadowy figure who ran by his house. He had no real description. It could have been a man. It could have been a woman. And honestly, for all he knew, it could have been a jogger. But this figure ran across his lawn, right after the shots were fired. For over 30 minutes, the responding officers searched the dark neighborhood with flashlights and spotlights, but they didn't see anything. At 7 a.m., they went back to Bob's house to report that they couldn't find anything, and Bob told them he'd call back if he noticed anything else. And it wasn't long before he was making that call. It was 10 or 15 minutes after the police left that Bob and his wife took their dog out for a morning walk. By this point, the sun had started to come up. They walked by Fred Jablin's house, which was in the direction the shots had come from, and they saw something up the driveway between Fred's SUV and the kid's basketball hoop. Because of the length and angle of the driveway in relation to the sidewalk, they couldn't really tell what they were seeing. If not for hearing the gunshots earlier, you have to wonder if they would have just kept walking right on by. But Bob went up the driveway to see what was going on. When Bob got there, he found Fred's body face down in the driveway. So Bob yelled back to his wife to call the police. Fred had been shot to death in his driveway, still wearing his pajamas and slippers. Based on the trajectory, it appeared the killer had likely stood near the garage where they would have been obscured in the dark and not immediately visible from the door. When Fred stepped out to get his newspaper, the shooter only had to advance a short distance before firing. This did not appear to be a close-range shooting. They had two indications of this. First, there were no defensive wounds on Fred, and he likely would have tried to defend himself if he saw someone pointing a gun at him second, there was no gunshot residue on Fred's hands or even his clothes, and that indicated he was not close to the gun when it was fired. The gunman shot three times, hitting Fred twice with hollow point bullets. A shot to his arm was not fatal, but one to his back was. Hollow point bullets are known for being more lethal than regular pointed ammunition, since they mushroom and expand when they hit soft tissue. The bullet that entered Fred's back hit multiple organs and did massive damage. It's not clear how long Fred was alive in his driveway after being shot, but it does seem unlikely that he would have been saved even if he was found right away. But this evaluation of the crime scene would come later. When the police arrived at the house for the second time, the neighbors told them that Fred had three children living in the house with him, ages 15, 12, and 8. The kids were the first concern. Had they also been killed? Were they being held hostage in the house? Had they been abducted? The SWAT team entered the house in rescue mode. They didn't know what they were going to find as they cleared the empty first floor. Fortunately, upstairs, they found three confused and sleepy, but very much unharmed children who were unaware of what was going on outside their house. The police got the kids out of the house in a direction that avoided any chance that they would see their father's body in the driveway. The police wondered if this was a burglary or an attempted burglary or if Fred was a target, and we don't need to drag this out very long, because the neighbors pretty much immediately said it would be a good idea to figure out where Piper was that morning. So while the scene was being processed and the necessary search warrants were being sought, investigators talked to people who knew Fred and Piper and the contentious nature of their divorce it seemed everyone thought that Piper's old friend Melody would be a good person to talk to. No one saw the ins and outs of Piper and Fred's relationship quite like Melody did. She was even brought in to testify in one of the custody hearings. Her testimony did end up favoring Fred rather strongly, to be honest, but when Piper saw her in court, she thought Melody's testimony would be on her side. She was close at one time or another to both of them. Melody told the police everything we covered in part one and even mentioned that things seemed to have smoothed over a bit between the exes. But she said Fred was, for a while at least, scared of Piper. Scared enough that he changed his will to make his brother the guardian of the children should something happen to him. Piper was why he had an alarm system installed, an alarm system Piper knew he had since she kept setting it off by breaking into his house during the worst parts of their divorce. But Piper lived 1,300 miles away in Houston, Texas. The police first had to determine if she was even in Virginia that morning. The police talked to the Roundtree Jablin children, and they mentioned that they had talked to their mother the day before the shooting. When Piper talked to her son, she said she was driving home from work in Galveston, which would place her in Texas the night before. Investigators confirmed the times of these calls and which phone number Piper was using when she called but the phone was a cell phone. And just because Piper said she was in Texas didn't mean it was true. So the police pulled her phone records and subpoenaed cell tower records to see where the phone pinged off of. Pulling phone records like this isn't quite as easy as it looks on TV. For expediency's sake, the writers of Law & Order they have the LUDs come in all at once and in a single handy report. But that's not how it really works. The police have to contact every cell company involved to get the information from them. So the reports may come in quickly, but they come in one at a time. Some even will send a preliminary report of information that's pretty easy to pull, like a call log but they'll take longer with other things like cell phone tower pings. So one of the reports that came in from the cell phone company indicated that Piper, or at least her phone, was not in Texas at the time the kids said they talked to her. The phone pinged towers in Richmond, Virginia. Another report came in that showed the phone pinging off a tower just five miles from the murder scene on the morning of the shooting. So from the start, the police are looking at Piper closely, and they wanted to talk to her immediately. But she was not answering her phone, and attempts to locate her at her house were also met with silence. Not only did they need to talk to her about the murder and get her alibi, Her children were currently being taken in by friends and custody had to be sorted. The next cell report that came in gave the police a clue as to why Piper wasn't answering her phone or answering her front door. The phone had, shortly after the murder, pinged in Norfolk, Virginia. Then it has no activity until it pinged in Baltimore, Maryland, about 90 minutes later. And the only way to make that 240-mile trek in an hour and a half was on an airplane. So the investigators decided to track flight records, and they were in for a little bit of a surprise. There was no record of Piper Roundtree flying from Virginia to Maryland, but another Roundtree had, Tina Roundtree, Piper's devoted older sister, who flew into Virginia on Thursday and left at 2.30 p.m. on Saturday, hours after the murder. She was on a flight to Houston with a layover in Baltimore, and when the police learned about this plane ticket, that plane from Baltimore to Houston was currently in the air and due to land in two hours. Two hours is plenty of time to contact Houston and have police officers meet the plane and confront whichever Roundtree sister disembarked. They wanted to not just detain the sister who got off the plane, but also confiscate and hold the bags so there was no time to dispose of evidence. They watched as the flight emptied, and it didn't look like either woman got off the plane. They then searched the plane, wondering if she was hiding in the bathroom. They hurried over to baggage claim, but by the time they got there, Tina Roundtree's checked bag had been picked up. She had walked right past them, possibly in some sort of disguise. So they still don't know if it's Tina or Piper. Not long after this, more cell records came in, placing Piper's phone near a bunch of hotels in Richmond the morning of the murder. Checking with pretty much all of them, they found that Tina Roundtree did have a reservation the night before the murder at the Homestead Suites, but according to the records, she had not checked in. Later, they would find through cell records that Piper's phone had called in a pizza order that night and it was to be delivered to the hotel. So when they asked the clerks about this, it was remembered that the reservation under Tina Roundtree was then changed to the name Geraldine Smith at the request of the person checking in. So as the police were busy with these warrants and subpoenas and witnesses and hotels, you can imagine people were trying all day to get in touch with Piper to tell her what happened to Fred, but she never answered. It wasn't until around 6.30 or 7 that Piper began returning voicemails, first calling her friend Lonnie, who lived back in Virginia. Lonnie was the one who broke the news to Piper that Fred had been murdered. Piper didn't sound terribly interested in that information. The only question she had was where were her children? Lonnie said she didn't know, so Piper hung up with her and called back one of the police officers, Kobe Kelly, who had tried to get in touch with her and had left her a message. She ended up leaving him a message, and there was a little bit of phone tag until 9 p.m. that night when Kelly finally got Piper on the phone. Piper was primarily focused on where her kids were and about coming to Virginia to get them. But she did seem a little more interested in Fred's murder on this call, asking the police what had happened. But when Kelly would start questioning Piper to get other information, like her whereabouts, for the weekend, she would answer vaguely and then steer the conversation back to her kids, insisting that she now had custody. But Kelly had managed to get one important admission out of Piper on that call. She said she spoke with her children on Friday which is when the police knew her cell phone was in the Richmond area and not in Texas. So she has admittedly connected her physical being with the location of that cell phone. This answered to the police, was it Tina? No, it looked like it was Piper. The question was, did she do all of this with Tina's help or with Tina's knowledge or was Tina being unfairly dragged into this. The police finally had a sit-down with Piper Roundtree on Sunday, the day after the murder. Kobe Kelly and another Richmond investigator had flown to Houston to find her. First, they went to her house where she would not answer the door. They knew she was there because an officer they had posted to watch Piper's house saw her arrive. The two Virginia investigators and one of the Texas ones then left to go find Tina to talk to her, but they left one officer to hang back and keep watching Piper's house. It wasn't long before he saw Piper pull her vehicle out of the garage. He communicated this out, and then he followed her to a local pet store. He approached her as she left her car and Piper told him that she would talk to him after she was done in the store. But when Piper came out of the store, she got right into her Jeep and drove off. The officer followed her through town until she pulled into the parking lot of a lawyer's office, a lawyer named Marty McVeigh. This was the same attorney she rented space from when she first moved to Texas. The other investigators all arrived at the same time. Piper entered the office with the four detectives behind her. She was crying, and she told Marty that she wanted to talk to her children. After Marty calmed her down a bit and spoke with the investigators, Piper was permitted to call the kids for the first time since Fred had been killed the morning before. On the phone call, Piper was overheard saying some things that no one should say to three traumatized children. Remember, their father was gunned down outside their home while they slept, and Piper's idea of comfort was to tell them that she feared for their safety now that their dad was dead. She said things about how Fred's brother, who was planning to care for the kids in the immediate future, was going to inherit millions if the kids also died. She also told them they should ask for police protection. This is a scary and damaging thing to say to any child, but we are talking about kids who just had violence enter their lives. So after the call, Piper agreed to talk with the investigators. She said that Fred's brother, Michael, had a motive, much along the lines of what she had told the kids on the phone. She said that the brothers weren't really that close, but that Michael was Fred's only heir, aside from the kids, and that Fred wanted Michael to have custody should anything happen to him. With getting custody, Michael would also control the children's trust funds, giving him a motive, I guess, to kill his brother. And this is a really dark medieval royal family murderous conspiracy kind of storyline here. Very Princes in the Tower. But Piper didn't only point a finger at the plotting uncle, She also said Fred had control over the University of Richmond's funds, or at least a fund there, and he had a lot of secrets, so who knows what was going on. That might be another thing the police should look at, someone at the university who wanted to do Fred in. I'm not going to pretend that the police were terribly interested in Piper's theories so much as they were in her alibi. Piper assured them that she was definitely in Texas that weekend. Exactly where she was, she couldn't quite pinpoint, even though this is literally the next day. The investigators asked Piper where she was when she called her son, and she said she was driving between Galveston and Houston. Of course, they already know her phone pinged in Richmond. Clearly, she was lying, and that was mostly the point of asking. They didn't expect her to tell the truth, but they wanted it again on the record. After mostly dodging the more specific questions about her alibi for Friday and Saturday, Piper eventually hinted that she was with a married man, someone who wouldn't want to get dragged into this she hesitated to give the name. She also said she stayed at her sister Tina's house overnight, but that Tina was not home. The police wanted the name of the guy who could vouch for Piper, so Marty, the lawyer, suggested they stop the interview for the day and give Piper some time to warn this man that the police would come looking for him for a statement. And Piper agreed. But Piper's main concern was getting her kids, but that is outside the reach of the homicide detectives. So the investigators left and they went to talk to Tina. She, like Piper, was mostly concerned about the children and getting them reunited with the family. Tina actually refused to talk to the police at all or tell them where Piper was for the weekend until the kids were brought to Texas, and then she told the police to get out. On Sunday evening, Piper talked to her boss and man named Charles. She told him what was going on and said she was worried. She had told Charles that she needed Thursday and Friday off of work for some continuing education classes. That would be the perfect alibi, since you have to sign a roll so that you get credit for those classes. But it turned out Piper said she had the wrong weekend for this. She ended up not going, but she decided to take the two days off anyway. On Friday night, Piper had plans to go to a party with her sister, Jean, who stood her up. So Piper instead walked to a bar near Tina's house. There, she met a man, possibly named Steve, who walked her home. Piper worried that admitting that she let a strange man she met at a bar walk her home would be an issue getting custody of her kids, so she didn't want to admit that to the police. Piper wanted Charles to help her figure out how to prove she was in Texas without Steve coming into the picture, and Charles gave her some ideas. Did she order any food, go to the store, do literally anything that produces a receipt or a credit card charge? And Piper said she just went between the bar and home and she paid cash that weekend. Then Charles asked about her cell phone. If she used her phone, they could tell where it pinged off the towers. It's not clear if Piper knew about cell phone technology and pinging towers before Charles brought it up to her. But she told him that she had lost her phone over the weekend, so that wouldn't help. Then Charles remembered that Piper had emailed him on Saturday, so that should give some indication. Just turn over the computer to the police show them the email, and it would show that it was sent from her home computer. Except Piper said there was stuff on her computer that she didn't want the police to see, so she didn't want to turn it over. Again, it appears to be custody concerns. Charles told Piper to just tell the police where she was, give them this information, forget what else it might implicate her in. Yes, she was worried about child custody, but just spitballing here, maybe worry about being implicated in a murder first and clear that hurdle. But to clear that hurdle, Piper would have to be innocent, which Charles at the time believed she was. The police and Charles were not on the same page on that. On Monday, November 1st, the investigators in Virginia got the records from the airline about who paid for the flights in Tina Roundtree's name. They were charged to a debit card, so there was a paper trail. The card used to buy the tickets was in the name of Jerry Walters, and Jerry was Piper's boyfriend. They then, of course, pull the rest of Jerry's bank records for that account, and from that account, someone bought two wigs. Both were long-haired wigs, one blonde and one red. So the police followed up on this, contacting the online store. The woman they spoke with actually remembered this specific purchase because there was an issue with the order. The wigs had been on sale when they were purchased, but the company had oversold the blonde ones. So they shipped the red one with a note saying that they would ship the blonde one when they had more available at the sale price. The customer, a woman, called the company because she really wanted a blonde wig. The store did have more inventory of that wig, but it was not cleared to be sold at the lower price. They could still ship it out if the customer was willing to pay the difference between the sale price she already paid and full price. Not only did the customer agree to that, she paid more to have it overnighted. It arrived two days before the murder and was shipped to a rented mailbox at a shipping store. And that mailbox was rented to Jerry Walters and Piper Roundtree. There were other purchases on the bank statement that were made in Richmond the weekend of the murder. One purchase even aligned in location and time, with Piper's cell phone being in the same area. The investigators pulled security footage from some of those stores where purchases were made, but none of them definitively showed Piper. The best they had was one that looked like it could be Piper in a blonde wig. When the police finally sat down with Jerry Walters about this bank account, he said that he opened it for Piper while she was going through her bankruptcy so that she could have an account not in her name. This really sounds like hiding money during a bankruptcy, which isn't a good look, but again, more focused on this murder investigation. Jerry said he noticed the bank account was overdrafted and the card had been used in Virginia. Piper told him that it wasn't her, the card had been stolen out of her bag at the gym. He asked how someone managed to use the card without the pin, and Piper said she actually had written the pin on the back so she wouldn't forget it. So Jerry then canceled the card. But this highlights one of those issues they were having in the case. They knew that this was Piper in Virginia every step of the way, but she said the card was stolen. The tickets were in Tina's name. The cell phone was Piper's, but she said she lost it. They 100% believed that it was Piper who was there, but they needed stuff Piper could not explain away for the jury. The police did rule out both Jerry and Tina based on their alibis. Jerry was in Baton Rouge for the weekend and could prove it, and Tina was working on the morning of the murder. And she was seeing patients, so there was no way she had snuck off to Virginia. The only person the investigators had spoken to who couldn't provide an alibi was Piper Roundtree but what they really felt they needed to move forward with this case was an eyewitness who could place Piper in Virginia. Looking at the various interactions Piper would have had if she was the one in Richmond, the interactions were mostly brief. Checking in at a hotel, taking a delivery pizza, checking out at a busy convenience store but the one area she spent a decent amount of time with anyone was at the airport because the ticket in Tina Roundtree's name was initially a return ticket for Sunday, the day after the murder. But someone, the police believe Piper, had gone to the airport to change it so that she could fly out as soon as possible on Saturday. So if this was Piper, she would have had a prolonged conversation with the person at the desk as they updated everything and took payment for the flight change. The woman would then have to go through TSA and answer security questions as they studied her ID. So perhaps that person would recognize her. And they got lucky. The agent who changed the ticket didn't remember the interaction, but a TSA agent did because she thought the name Tina Roundtree sounded cute. And also, the woman checked a gun. This requires inspection of the weapon and filling out forms, so it is a long enough process that they were together for a few minutes. The agent then identified a picture of Piper as the woman who checked the gun. Things were definitely closing in on Piper, and she could sense it. She moved into a hotel room to avoid the police contacting her at her house. She also did not fly back to Virginia at any point in this first week of the investigation. For all her talk of concern for her children, Piper made no attempts to be with them or to go to Fred's funeral to comfort them. Michael Jablin and his wife, along with the kid's nanny, were the ones getting them through the service, not Piper. Plans were being made for the kids to move in with Michael's family, a man Piper claimed she suspected was a danger to the children and their inheritance. But Piper was too busy trying to avoid arrest, and going back to Virginia really wouldn't help her there. Though she didn't know how much evidence the police had that placed her in Virginia, it had to have sunk in by this point that they had those cell records. She at first tried to say she lost the phone, but she had made other calls in the days after the murder from that number. So it wasn't much of a defense. She lost the phone, it was used in Virginia, and then suddenly she found it again in Texas? So the story would shift to the phone being a shared communal phone, and we will get into that later. What Piper needed before she could risk going to Virginia to get custody was an alibi. That would be the best way to prove she didn't do this. So Piper and Tina went to the bar Piper said she was at the night before the murder. She asked the bartender if she remembered Piper being there that Friday night. Piper said that an ex-boyfriend of hers who she had been with four years before had been stabbed, and the police wanted to know where she was. So she made it sound a lot less intense than her ex-husband, who she had a messy custody battle with, being gunned down. The bartender Cheryl and a patron named Kevin did remember seeing Piper in the bar recently, but they weren't sure which night. Kevin thought it was over the weekend, and the only night Cheryl worked that weekend was Friday, so it probably was Friday night. They gave Piper their phone numbers to pass on to the police in case their information could help. Piper and Tina left the bar, And then they came back 30 minutes later with legal forms and a notary. Piper asked Cheryl and Kevin to write down their statements saying that they saw her in the bar on Friday. And then the man would notarize them immediately and Piper could submit them to the police. Cheryl and Kevin both told Piper to just give the police their cell phone numbers and they would talk to them directly. Neither felt that sure that she was definitely there on Friday that they would make a notarized statement claiming that. Piper started to insist that they give these signed statements, but Tina talked her into just leaving. Piper did turn over the numbers and the information to the police, but she said she could not find the man who had walked her home, but she'd keep looking. She also told the police that she sent an email to someone from her house on Saturday, and a neighbor had delivered Girl Scout cookies, which would prove that she was home. But that information wasn't really going to help Cheryl, the bartender, had checked the bar tabs and found out that Kevin hadn't been in the bar at all on Friday night, so there was no way he could have seen Piper on Friday. And Cheryl remembered that she actually did go to the bar on Saturday night. She wasn't working, but she showed up for a little while with some friends. Since Kevin's bar tab showed that he was also there Saturday night, They were both now pretty sure that it was Saturday night that they had seen Piper. So alibi number one is gone. As for the Girl Scout cookies from Saturday, that didn't work out much better. The neighbor who delivered them said that the woman who answered the door was not, in her view, Piper. She didn't get a good look at the woman because she had a baseball cap pulled low and she wouldn't open the door all the way. But her build was larger than Piper's, which would match Tina. The neighbor also said there was a black SUV in the driveway, which was the vehicle Tina drove. If it was actually Tina at the house on Saturday afternoon after she finished work, She could have also sent emails or done whatever else would set up an alibi at Piper's house. This Girl Scout cookie alibi not only did not help Piper, it hurt Tina. It was making it look like Tina did have some involvement, even if it was after the fact. And then the police interviewed a friend of Tina's who gave them the final pieces to give an idea of what Tina may or may not have done. The friend is given a pseudonym in the book Die My Love. They give her the name Carol, so we're just going to go with that. Carol claimed Tina confessed to her that Piper had gone to Virginia to kill Fred, but it didn't sound like Tina knew ahead of time that she had done this. Tina was just helping Piper get rid of some of the evidence. Carol actually agreed to help and took some of the evidence herself to get rid of. She said she spoke with an attorney who told her to go to the police, but not wanting to be involved any longer, Carol brought the stuff to Piper and gave it back to her. She said Piper was, at the time, staying in the hotel in Houston. And as odd as this may sound, the story was backed up with CCTV footage. The hotel had outside security cameras. The police were able to find the footage of Carol pulling up, getting a hotel valet to bring her a luggage cart, and then she unloaded the items from her trunk onto it. She gave the valet a tip, and he wheeled the stuff inside. So now the police weren't just looking at a warrant for Piper's arrest, but for Tina's as well. And the final pieces were coming together when someone at a rental car agency in Virginia had a rental to Tina Roundtree, but identified a picture of Piper Roundtree. In the meantime, the Houston Airport parking garage noted that Piper's car had been parked there the weekend of the murder. An arrest warrant was issued. On Monday, November 8th, 2004, the investigators were ready to arrest 44-year-old Piper Roundtree. And they weren't even going to have to go to Texas to do it and deal with extradition. Piper was coming back to Virginia. It was really her only choice, Fred had been killed nine days prior, and custody for the children was still to be determined. On that day in a Richmond court, Michael Jablin and his wife planned on asking for full custody, while Piper was going to show up to do likewise. But the judge had already been informed that the arrest warrant for Piper had been issued. Knowing Piper was going to be taken into custody after the hearing, the judge gave Michael temporary custody pending the outcome of the criminal investigation. When Piper, very disappointed, drove off with her brother and attorney after this hearing, the police pulled them over and arrested Piper. Piper asked for a lawyer, and that was the end of any cooperating with police Not that she had done a ton to begin with. Piper was charged with unlawful use of a firearm and first-degree murder. She was denied bond and held pending trial. Meanwhile, the Houston police arrested Tina at her work. She was charged with tampering with evidence, which is a felony but the investigators made it clear to Tina that they would like her cooperation in the Virginia case against Piper. And the longer she waited to talk to them, the less they would need her. Her friend Carol had signed an immunity deal for her role in getting rid of evidence in exchange for her testimony already. But Tina's testimony would be worth a lot more. And in the end, prosecutors didn't use Carol's testimony at all. Tina did have quite a bit to lose here. A felony could cost her her nursing license and her career. But Tina would not make any deal that required her to turn on Piper. Tina said and still says she believes Piper is innocent. The timeline here from the murder to the trial was relatively short, just four months. This was the perfect picture of the right to a speedy trial. The murder occurred in late October 2004, the arrest in early November, and the trial happened in February 2005. The main reason this case could move so quickly was that there was no forensic evidence, That type of evidence takes time to process, test, retest, turn over to the defense for their testing, reports being drawn up, reports being disputed, and so on. This case had none of that. This was going to be 100% circumstantial and the sides were able to prepare pretty quickly after the pretrial motions were dealt with. The most notable of the pre-trial stuff was the defense challenging the various eyewitnesses who saw Piper in Virginia that weekend. In the end, the state had found 7. The defense wanted their testimony excluded because the police in their view improperly obtained the identifications rather than showing the witnesses a photo array They only showed them pictures of Piper. At the hearing over this motion in January 2005, the various witnesses were all brought in and asked to identify the woman they had seen. Three of them could not point Piper Roundtree out there in the courtroom. In fairness to them, this was months later, whereas when they saw the picture, it was days later. Plus, Piper had gained about 20 pounds after her arrest. This softened out her features enough that she was less recognizable. And she had her natural dark hair in court and not the long blonde wig she wore when in Virginia. While the defense did not succeed in getting the identifications excluded from trial, the judge allowed what happened at the pretrial hearing into the trial. The defense was allowed to tell the jury that three of the witnesses could not ID Piper when they saw her in person. They were also allowed to bring in other discrepancies in the witness statements. For instance, one witness said that the woman came up to his forehead, when Piper is far too short for that. The case against Piper, as presented to the jury, focused on two motives, custody and finances. She owed Fred thousands in back child support, and she was still the beneficiary on one of his insurance policies. In addition to getting custody of her kids back, she would not have to pay back the child support. She wouldn't have to pay any going forward. She would get the life insurance, and Piper would also get control of the children's inheritance. Piper's defense was she didn't do it, and she had no reason to. Piper had been catching up on her back child support she had a decent-paying job, and the things between her and Fred had calmed down. They weren't friends, they probably never would have been, but they found some sort of rhythm in their arrangement. And the defense said Piper couldn't have done it because she was in Texas that weekend. So the prosecution case was mostly a string of witnesses who put all these little pieces together so that the whole of the evidence pointed at Piper. And at the end of the prosecution's case, the defense asked the judge for a directed verdict. That basically means the state hadn't proved their case and there was no legal basis for a jury to find the defendant guilty. The judge could tell the jury that the verdict is not guilty and the trial would be over. These are often asked for, but rarely granted with the case against Piper being so circumstantial, with no forensic evidence, there seemed to be a better-than-zero chance that this could be granted. But judges often hesitate to take a case out of the hands of a jury, and forensic evidence is not a legal requirement in a trial. Circumstantial evidence is still evidence, and the judge in this case found that it was enough to continue with the trial and have the defense present their case. The defense did not have Tina testify. She refused to. She said if put on the stand, she would have to plead the fifth. She had enough of her own problems at this point, and her tampering with evidence charge, again, a felony, was still outstanding. She had not gone to trial yet. But this was fine with Piper's defense team because they decided they were going to present Tina to the jury as a reasonable alternative suspect. They pointed out at every turn where Tina's name was used. Prior to the murder, someone went to a shooting range signing in under the name Tina Roundtree. Sure, two witnesses identified Piper as the person at the range, But the logbook said it was Tina. Then there's the plane ticket, the rental vehicle, and the hotel reservation. Tina also had, according to Piper, access to the phone that pinged in Virginia. I mentioned it was a shared communal phone, according to Piper. So she is now saying it was with Tina for the weekend. The defense called the third Roundtree sister, Jean, to the stand. And she said that sometimes Tina used that cell phone and that the women's voices sounded the same over the phone. So even though people thought they were talking to Piper on the phone while the phone was in Virginia, it could have been Tina. And I think this is an interesting dynamic to have one sister basically implicate another to save the third. Families are complicated. But this argument about the phone doesn't necessarily go very far because one of the phone calls was made to Piper's son. To not make her children testify against her and endure additional trauma, Piper agreed for their police interviews to be admitted and not cross-examined. So the jury heard, unchallenged, that Piper's son said his mom called him on Friday and told him she was calling from Galveston while the cell phone pings were in Richmond. Piper also spoke with her son's friend, who he was hanging out with that day, and the friend did testify. He said it was Piper. But I think the son's statement had much more weight, since he would know his mother's voice and not mix it up with his aunt's over the course of an entire conversation. And beyond this, we can't ignore that Piper admitted to the police before she knew about the cell tower pings that she's the one who called. But to further attempt to prove that Piper could not have been in Virginia, the defense called an alibi witness, Marty McVeigh. This is the attorney who Piper rented an office from, and the same attorney whose office she took the police to when they questioned her the day after the murder. He was now testifying that at the same time someone was on the flight from Baltimore to Houston under the name Tina Roundtree, Piper was actually with him. Never mind that he never told the police this information, the day they were in his office, talking about the murder. Marty said he didn't mention it to the police because no one asked him. This man, a member of the bar, was going to let his friend and colleague be arrested and tried on murder charges rather than volunteer the information he says clears her. That's what he wanted the jury to believe. Of course, Piper's attorney wanted the jury to see this as a member of the bar who would never perjure himself and risk his law license over a friend. But either Marty let his friend go to trial because he didn't come forward for three months with the information that could save her, or he lied in court. If I was on that jury, I wouldn't see him as a great witness either way you sliced it. And mind you, in Piper's communications with the police in regards to her alibi, she didn't bring Marty up at all until shortly before the trial. Even sitting in his office the day after the murder, she didn't mention that she had been there just the day before. Of course, the state focused on these concerns with Marty's testimony, and I think it landed. I don't think the defense got the job done here. And it got worse on rebuttal for Mr. Marty McVeigh, Esquire, and I'll get to that in a second after we wrap up the defense case. Piper did take the stand in her own defense. She pointed the finger vaguely in Tina's direction, but when asked directly on cross-examination if she thought Tina killed Fred, Piper said she didn't know what happened. And Piper answered, I don't know, quite a bit. If she had a somewhat reasonable explanation for any piece of evidence, she gave it, but pushed any further, she'd say, I don't know. Piper basically had no idea why so much of the information gathered pointed at her, except that people must be mistaken. The airport was mistaken about her car being parked there. The witnesses were mistaken on who they saw in Virginia. People were mistaken about her voice being on the other end of the phone. No one except Piper thought she should take the stand, and when she stepped down, I wonder if she realized then what a bad idea it was. If her goal was to explain the evidence away, she didn't do a good job of it, since she said, I don't know so often. And she didn't, from my understanding, seem all that broken up about Fred's death. That alone just is never going to be a good look for a jury. I wish optics like this didn't matter in a trial, but juries are everyday people, and everyday people judge based not just on what you say, but how you say it. So if Piper is going to testify that she would never kill Fred because she believed her children needed their father she also had to come across, at least a little bit sad, that her children lost their father. From the reports coming from the courtroom, Piper seemed pretty matter-of-fact about Fred's murder in general. And if Piper taking the stand did not do her case any favors, a journalist named Paige Aiken wrote a story on the murder that I mentioned in my first episode was a source for these two episodes. This story she wrote ended up becoming part of the case. For the story, Paige interviewed Marty McVeigh in January, one month before the trial. He told her that when Piper showed up at the office with the police the day after the murder, he hadn't seen her in about a year. This directly contradicts his testimony that he had seen her the day before the police showed up. Being that Marty was Piper's only reasonable alibi, this was a big deal. When the article was printed, the state wanted Page on the stand to rebut Marty's testimony. The judge allowed it, but as she is a journalist and her sources are protected, it was only for this very limited scope. And she testified as to what Marty said to her. The defense put Marty back on the stand to deny that he said this and how the reporter had recorded it incorrectly. But the damage was done. The jurors who have spoken since the trial have said they viewed Marty as someone trying to help his friend. He may have truly believed Piper was innocent, and all she lacked was the alibi to prove it. On February 26, 2005, it took the jury less than an hour to deliberate. Piper Roundtree was convicted of first-degree murder and the use of a firearm during the commission of a felony. Piper cried when the verdict was read. The jury recommendation part of the sentencing began, and Piper could get anywhere from 20 years to a life sentence. Piper had her mother and a friend speak to what a good person she was, and the state had Michael Jablin speak on behalf of the family and of the children. He was able to convey both the scope of the trauma the children had experienced, but also the path to healing that they were on. Something that really stood out to me was that at the recommendation of the children's grief therapist, Michael had photographs of both Fred and Piper in the home. And he encouraged them to write to Piper whenever they wanted, though the oldest was the only one who seemed terribly interested in doing so. Michael made it clear that the children were getting whatever help and guidance they needed to get through this. The defense asked for leniency for the sake of the children who had lost their father and were going to lose their mother also. We often see this argument of leniency in sentencing when it is the case of a parent killing the other parent. The jury deliberated and then gave their non-binding sentencing recommendation of a life sentence the final hearing for the judge to make the determination on the sentence was not until May 6, 2005. A pre-sentencing report was prepared for the judge that included relevant facts of the case. This is a really important time for the defense, not just because they want to get their client a lighter sentence, but also because they need to get any issue they have with the report on the record for the sake of future appeals. It's been kind of a theme on our episodes lately about the importance of objecting at the earliest possible moment. Otherwise, your appeal can be dismissed without the judges even weighing the merits, just because you were too late to raise your complaint. So Piper's attorney started the sentencing hearing by clarifying and or objecting to a bunch of little things in the report for the sake of having it on the record. The pre-sentencing report can also contain things not in the trial, things that may have not been admissible or not part of the defense strategy during the guilt or innocence phase. This can include psych evaluations, mitigating circumstances, things like Piper's childhood, or even Fred's alleged abuse against her. So the prosecution will also generally have a few points in the report that they disagree with and will ask to have them disregarded by the judge. In this case, Piper stated in the pre-sentencing report that Fred had felony arrests in multiple states something the state could easily disprove with a records check in those states. It seems like such a pointless lie. So that was struck, and not a consideration in the judge's decision. Though the fact that Piper lied to the judge in the report surely didn't help her case. Catherine Casey, the author of the book Die, My Love, which I highly recommend, pointed out that Piper really tied her attorney's hands at every turn and made their job harder. This was just another example of that. Piper spoke at the hearing and maintained her innocence. She said she never would have hurt her children by taking away their father. Everything she did in her life was for her kids and again asked for mercy for their sake. What she didn't do was apologize or show remorse, which if you believe she's innocent as she's maintained, that would have been something she couldn't do since she wouldn't have been the one who killed Fred. The judge decided to stick with the sentencing recommendation by the jury and sentenced 45-year-old Piper Roundtree to life in prison plus three years for the firearms charge. Now, Tina Roundtree went on to plead guilty to tampering with evidence in a deal that kept her out of jail and allowed her to keep her nursing license. Reportedly, she does not hold ill will towards Piper for using her as the alternative suspect at trial. Tina believes Piper was framed, possibly by someone at the University of Richmond who killed Fred to cover up for something else. Within a month of her sentencing, Piper gave an interview to the Associated Press to tell what she thought really happened, and she stuck more or less with what she said when she sat down with the police the day after the murder. She said that Michael hated her, hated her family, and he inherited $2 million from his brother's death. $2 million is a huge motive. The only issue with this is that Michael didn't inherit $2 million. Michael was the trustee of the estate on the behalf of the children. But that didn't mean he could just spend that money on himself or however he wanted. This money was accounted for and was set aside for the children. 100% of Fred's estate was inherited by his kids. Michael didn't inherit Anything. And he and his wife took on raising three wonderful but traumatized children on top of caring for their own children. Of all the people Piper could point a finger at in her desperate attempt to get away with murder, I find it particularly disgusting that she points at the person she should be thanking from the depths of her soul for taking care of her children. Can you imagine if your brother was murdered and a grief counselor told you to leave photos of the person who killed him up in your home for the sake of the kids? For the sake of the children, Michael Jablin walked by Piper's photograph every day. I cannot even imagine how hard that was. In the same interview with the Associated Press, Piper said she was a victim. She was a victim of Fred's abuse, and then she was re-victimized by the system, the corrupt police and overzealous prosecutors. Due to Virginia's parole laws, anyone having served at least 10 years of their sentence can apply for geriatric release when they turn 60 years old. Piper turned 60 in early 2020 and applied for parole. It was, as expected, denied in March 2020. Piper Roundtree maintains her innocence. Thank you for listening. You can find Crime Lines on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for Crime Lines True Crime. Crime Lines is on Patreon where I offer early and ad-free episodes as well as bonus content. Visit patreon.com crimelines. If you want to buy me a coffee, the official drink of Crimelines, you can give a one-time donation at basementfortproductions.com slash support. I also live stream two or three times a month on Get Vocal. To see my upcoming live stream schedule, follow the Get Vocal link in the show notes. And if you need a palate cleanser after listening to heavier true crime shows, check out Rusty Hinges, an allegedly funny history, mystery, and true crime show that I co-created and write for.